I will be reading the scripture for this morning's message. It will be from the Song of Solomon, and I'll be reading from the New International Version. And it's a dialogue between um, the man and the woman. So first the man, the man says, You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Descend from the crest of Amana, from the top of Sinar, the summit of Hermon, from the lion's dens and the mountain haunts of leopards. You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and the fragrance of your perfume more than any spice. And then the woman responds, Awake, north wind, and come, south wind. Blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. And then the man responds, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. This is God's word to us this morning. And good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Bethany. Uh, let's take a moment. We'll pray as we continue on in the Song of Solomon. We're now in chapter 4, and it's uh, undoubtedly the most erotic sermon I've ever preached. So please join me in prayer as we look at this material together this morning, asking that the Holy Spirit would speak to us. Father, we're grateful that you are the creator of life and beauty, and particularly this, this beautiful weekend, Father, as we see new life all around us bursting forth. Uh, we are acknowledging that you're the giver of every good gift, so thank you for that. And thank you, Father, for the gift of making us whole people, body, soul, and spirit. And we pray that you would speak to us this morning, Father, about uh, uh, pulling together all of those uh, pieces that we are and living as one, uh, Lord, uh, fully embracing all that you've created us to be. We pray that you take us there and minister to us through the power of your Holy Spirit in Christ's name. Amen. So as we uh, begin this discussion this morning in uh, Song of Solomon chapter 4, I'm articulating to you that there's really three words that are in desperate need of recovery among Christ's followers if uh, we are to be a testimony of an alternative sexual ethic to the prevailing culture in which we find ourselves. And all three words are in need of recovery, both for married people and for all of us as we relate to each other. And for all of us as Christ followers, as we embrace our identity as the bride of Christ. So there's three very important words, and we'll be applying them both horizontally, particularly in marriage, but also beyond marriage, and vertically in our relationship with Christ. And here's the three words, eros, affirmation, and invitation. All three words are in need of recovery because all, of, all three words have been kind of co-opted or stolen or reinterpreted by the culture in which we find ourselves. Eros has come to mean in the 21st century, and really has been this way for many centuries, Eros is going to mean sexual indulgence and nothing more. Sex is an appetite, and it's to be indulged. And that has led to all kinds of trouble and loneliness and alienation and addiction. And then the church, in response to that, 
has, has reacted often with what's called genophobia or a fear of sex. In other words, the church has been guilty of vilifying sexuality in response to an overindulgence in sexuality. Eros needs recovery. Second, affirmation needs recovery because in the context of relationships, affirmation is really the lifeblood that sustains a relationship. And often as uh, covenant relationships mature, affirmation is displaced by benign neglect. We stop noticing our spouse, uh, we, or we may notice, but we don't affirm, or we may go a step further uh, and become chronic in our criticism of our spouse. And so we need to recover affirmation. We need to recover, finally, inv invitation, because a healthy covenant relationship, both God toward us and us toward others, a healthy covenant relationship always respects the boundaries of the other and invites. And often in marriage, sexuality uh, uh, is, is uh, not a context in which invitation occurs, but it's a context in which use occurs. Like, I don't, in, I don't invite you, I use you, or I abuse you. These are, and the result of this is uh, there's a division in, in us as a community often, as, as Christ followers, between body and spirit, between eros and this other Greek word for love, agape, which is kind of a spiritual love. And so our our uh, sexuality then has nothing to do with the rest of our personhood. And this is tragic and in need of recovery. So that's kind of what we're going to see this morning. And, and I'll note here that you can't recover one of these words without recovering the others. In other words, these exist as an ecosystem. To recover eros, I must recover affirmation and invitation. If I, and if I try to only recover affirmation without eros, that also won't work. I need all three of these together. And, and so we're going to begin here this morning with kind of the end of this text in chapter 4. It actually ends in chapter 5, verse 1. Here's the man speaking, and then, we'll, and then we'll go back and look at these three words for recovery. I've come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I've gathered my myrrh and my balsam. I've eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I've drunk my wine and my milk. And then here's his kind of concluding statement. He's speaking of sexual love here, and this is what he says. Eat, friends, drink, in, imbibe deeply, O lovers. In other words, he's inviting in the context of covenant love for people to actually enjoy and fully embrace their, the, the way that they're created to be people deeply and passionately loving each other. And so he says, drink deeply of love. And this is the, this is the pinnacle or the summit of the entire book. The book's a poem. It's eight chapters long. Chapter five, verse one is the middle of the book. And so from the poetry structure, you see that this is the point of the whole book. Drink and imbibe deeply. In other words, you are created in covenant relationship for passionate love Work at that. And if you're single, have a vision for that and become the kind of person capable of living into that. And if you're married this morning, recover that to the extent that it's lost. So that's what we see this morning. Drink deeply. I mean, you're created for this erotic love. What does it mean to live into that and to live into it? There's three words in need of recovery. Eros, affirmation, invitation. We begin with eros. As a, as a starting point. So uh, there's a word here in verse 10 of chapter 4. Uh, how beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine. And the word love there in the Hebrew language is the word dode. And the Hebrew word dode has roughly a Greek equivalent that is more familiar to us. It's the word eros. How many of you have heard the word eros before? And it's, it's, the, it's the derivative or the root from which we get the derivative erotic 
And this is why the word has been so kind of misused because erotic is a pejorative statement largely in our culture, but it derives from a very healthy word, the word eros. And so we want to look at this word eros here. And uh, to kind of define it, I take you back to C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves. He speaks of eros this way. I'm quoting now Lewis. He says, eros makes a man really want not a woman, but a particular woman. This is very important. Hear this. In some mysterious but quite indisputable fashion, the lover desires the beloved herself, not the pleasure he will receive from her. Huge distinction. In other words, I want, I want my wife. I don't want what my wife can give me. I want my wife, right? Uh, no lover in the world ever sought the embraces of a woman he loved. And the word love here is eros. He never sought the, the, the embraces of the woman he loved as a result of a calculation that she would bring more pleasure than any other woman. In other words, uh, when uh, eros is used properly, <clears throat> it's a man saying, I don't, need, I don't want sex right now. I want you. <laughs> it's not like anyone will do. It's like only you. Is th th that's what I want, right? So eros... Isn't about the, it's, it's, Eros is about this arousal that comes from a pure desire for the other. And it's very different than kind of an animal longing for uh, either release from sexual tension or for, or for what you can receive from the other. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 2, the Apostle Paul uh, says, I couldn't speak to you guys as spiritual but as soulish. This would be a literal translation. And he's complaining about the Corinthians. And then when he says it's soulish, the, like the French Bible literally translates that animal man. And the reason the French Bible translates it thusly is because if you hang around here a little bit, you know that I teach often that we're made of three parts in a sense, body, soul, and spirit. And, and, and so if we're devoid of the Spirit, if the Spirit isn't speaking into our lives and forming us, this is Paul's complaint in 1 Corinthians 2, you're behaving out solely from the soul, and then you're behaving just like an animal. And what is sexuality for an animal? It's an appetite, nothing more. And so when Paul speaks later to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he deconstructs a popular saying there was a foot in Corinth, and the saying was intended to speak about the sexual ethic that prevailed in Corinth, and it's very similar to the sexual ethic of today, 21st century. Here's the saying. Food is for the body, the body is for food. In other words, the saying is an indication that you treat your sexuality the same way that you treat food. In other words, sex is nothing more than an appetite, and if sex is nothing more than an appetite, then you should view it as such and indulge it as such. So what do we do with appetites? Well, it's pretty simple, actually. If you're tired, what do you do? You sleep. If you're hungry, what do you do? You eat. If you're cold, what do you do? You put on a coat. If you're longing for sex, then what should you do? <laughs> and, the, and the subtext would be, the implication would be, you've got to find someone. Anyone, as long as they arouse you, anyone will do. And so in this view, uh, personhood is of no significance Related to sexuality, I just need an outlet. I just need a release. And, and, and the baseline question then becomes, in this perverse notion of eroticism, the baseline becomes, can I use you to quench my appetite? And tragically, that baseline animal instinct appetite uh, 
doesn't go away once you get married. People use sex uh, as, a, as a means of stress release, and people use the other in a way that's actually destructive and dehumanizing. And this is what we're addressing this morning as we elevate eros to a different level. And so the result of our perversion of the word eros is we have this total dysfunction that comes from divorcing sex from, from covenant, and because now sex is nothing more than an appetite, we, we indulge the appetite on demand, and in our culture, with the uh, multiplication of access to pornography, you can meet your appetite at any moment that you want. And as a result of that, we're facing arousal addiction, shame, and uh, to the extent that people become addicted to pornography, this fantasy world becomes more appealing than the real world because it's safe, you're in control, you can have this outlet for sexual release anytime you want, and it creates a dysfunction in your capacity to live in the real world. So that men now, married men, in their 20s are dealing with erectile dysfunction because of an addiction to pornography. And so this is a huge problem in our culture. The irony is that easy access to sex on demand has quenched our desire for actual erotic pleasure the way that God designed it. And we end up with this vast sense of loneliness, alienation, and dysfunction. And marriages, which have the paper, they've got the ring, they've got the pictures, they've got the cake in the freezer, still end up at times being a context in which one or both parties feel either ignored or used or devalued precisely because of sex. We have to address this, right? And what makes this story so beautifully erotic isn't that he wants sex. It's that he wants her. And he wants her not because she's a woman <laughs> and not because she's available, not because she'll give him a release from built-up sexual tension, he wants her because he has this pure desire only for her. And then here's the, the question then comes, well, where does he get this desire only for her? How does that happen? And here's the answer, covenant relationship. That's how that happens. In a healthy covenant relationship, uh, the, the desire is only for the other. If you go all the way to Genesis chapter 2, when God uh, created the woman, if you, some of you know the story, Adam's lonely, he falls asleep, he wakes up, Ho, ho, there's a woman, right? And so you know the story. And then uh, he says, behold, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And really, there's no English translation that adequately captures kind of the Hebrew here, which is when he sees the woman, he says, ho, ho, this is amazing. I don't, there's no way to translate it, right? Like he's, he's over the top for her, and the cynic in us reads that, and we go, well, of course he's over the top for her. She's the only woman on the planet, right? <laughs> like, how could he not be for, like, of course I want you. There's no one else. Now, that's a very jaded view, because what the language is specifically intending to show us is that God's design for marriage is that you would literally at some point come to the point where you, uh, like, uh, in a... To the extent that we approach God's ideal, we only have eyes for that one. Does this, does this make sense? Now, and how does that happen? It happens in this context of tying eros to affirmation and invitation, as we'll see. But affirmation and invitation are, are ways of living out something that we do when we get married and we make, a, we make a covenant promise to honor the other. If I'm going to honor my spouse... To honor the other means this. Look, I'm not going to use you, ever. You're not a means 
of you know sexual release for me. You're not you're not a you're not a stress reliever. You're not you're not someone to just quench an appetite. I won't use you. Instead, I will woo you. And we'll look at this in just a moment here. So here's him, and here she is, and he he has no hear me. He has no right to use her whenever he wants. She has no right to use him. Paul rearticulates this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, but there's a mutuality. So what happens is this. Because he can't and doesn't want to use her, because he wants to honor her, what he does is he doesn't begin uh, with kind of sexual foreplay. He begins with affirmation. And now watch this. When he affirms her and she receives that affirmation, she begins to believe that she is actually beautiful. Why? Because he tells her that she's beautiful. When he tells her that she's beautiful, then, then she becomes more confident. And ladies and men in the room hear this. When she becomes more confident, she becomes even more beautiful to him. Because men are turned on by the confidence. At least healthy men are. There are some men who are deeply threatened by confident women, but that's a different story, a different sermon entirely, called <laughs> The Problem with Guys. We'll get to that later. <laughs> But, when she's, but a healthy male is, is, is actually uh, encouraged by her confidence. And, and so then he affirms her more because he needs to woo her more, which makes her feel more confident, which makes her more beautiful. And this is the upward spiral of erotic love. Do you see? So this is God's intent. It's the way that God has designed it. So when we come to, to uh, uh, looking at how the church deals with this stuff, unfortunately, the church has looked at the abuse of eroticism. And because of that, we stopped talking about the gift of eroticism. And as a result, we cede the definition of eroticism to the culture at large, and the result, of course, has not been pretty. Pornography, human trafficking, prostitution, sexual abuse, loneliness, alienation, everything. Everything that's destructive about sex because we've ceded it. No, we need to recover this eros. So chapter 4 is Eros, and there's no question that he's aroused by her. Look at verse 9. You've made my heart, this, he, he's speaking to her, you've made my heart beat faster, my sister, my bride. You've made my heart be, beat faster with a single glance of your eyes, a single strand of your necklace. So he's saying, like physiologically, when I look at you, I'm aroused. My heart is beating faster. I want to enjoy love with you. And then, verse 10, he talks about how beautiful uh, this love relationship is with her. How beautiful is your love? And that's that Hebrew word, dod, which is the Greek equivalent, eros. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. And when he says sister here, it's not an incestuous relationship. Poetically, what he's saying is that you're not, that I'm related to you with all of the affinity and closeness that a brother would have with a sister, but it's more than that. You're not, I have all of that affinity and this erotic love as well. My sister, do you see, and my bride. So that, that's what he's saying there. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. Your love is better than wine, right? So uh, when you think of love here as the thing that's better than wine, don't think that he's talking about intercourse. Uh, love here encompasses the whole healthy covenant mating scenario, which I'm going to address in a moment. So intercourse is like one thing, but this one thing, divorced from everything else, is unhealthy. What's healthy is love here, dode, that includes 
affirming, seeking, wooing, inviting, and even playful denial, as I'll share in just a moment here, as you see in verse 12. So there's this sense of, in the relationship, a sense of confidence, a sense of safety, and within the sense of confidence and safety, the affirming, seeing, wooing, seeking, inviting, leads to this rich, profound uh, physical love that is what God calls good, you see. And so in the context of affirmation and invitation, eros becomes good. Uh, but for eros to be healthy, it must have these other two elements. It has to have affirmation and invitation in it as well. And so let's look at affirmation just for a moment here. So at the, the, he doesn't begin with uh, a, a sexual act of intercourse in this chapter. He shows us that Dode actually begins with affirmation. So I'm going to read for you beginning in verse uh, 1. How beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Now, uh, the language he uses here will not be, there won't be a cultural equivalency. Like, don't go home and tell your wife her eyes are like doves. It will be meaningless to her. And certainly don't tell her that her hair is like a flock of goats, because that also won't make any sense culturally, right? But what, all he's doing here is he's saying uh, in, in poetic, culturally appropriate imagery that her, he says, I see your eyes. And they're beautiful. I see, I see your hair. It's beautiful. Uh, your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn ewes, <laughs> which have come up from their washing, all of which bear twins. In other words, you're not losing, you haven't lost any teeth yet, which is beautiful. <laughs> uh, and and uh, your teeth are very white. Is, is he saying your teeth are white? That's what he's saying, right? Uh, and your lips are scarlet, and your temples are like a slice of pomegranate behind your veil. You're, and then you're, don't you love this? Your neck is like a tower of David built with rows of stones on which are hung a thousand shields. Now, what's he saying there? Likely, he's referring to the fact that he notices not just her, um, her, her body, but her jewelry as well, right? Uh, and this is reference to the, like the stones. Maybe perhaps she's wearing some, something around her neck. So he's noticing all these things. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies until the cool of the day when the shadows flee away. I will go to the mountains of myrrh and the hills of frankincense. And the mountains of, and myrrh and frankincense here are not just perfume, though they are perfume, but they're perfumes with kind of an aphrodisiac or sexual overtone. So that's, that's what he's saying there. So very poetically, he's, um, he, he's speaking to her uh, in, in a way that's wooing. And so what he's, what he's doing is he's affirming her. And it's supremely interesting here, just for a moment that we notice this, supremely interesting to me that she is presented as his bride, right? So she's his bride. And yet though she is his bride, she's also inaccessible. Because look down at verse 12. He says, a garden locked is my sister, my bride. A rock garden locked, a spring sealed up. Now, uh, I hope you know what her garden is, and if you don't, then uh, ask someone around you. You'll learn, you'll figure it out. I'm not even going to tell you. you. You can probably figure it out. You know what her garden is. But what he's saying here, okay, I'm married, and yet she's like this. Nope, I'm, look, though I'm married to you, I'm still not easy. Does this, are you hearing me? <laughs> I'm married to you, but my garden is locked. Now, why would she say that? Here's why. 
she has enough self-confidence and boundaries that she insists she be treated with respect and wooed by him rather than used by him. This is supremely important. Wooing is not intended to end on your wedding night. This is, the, this is actually, if I can be blunt, the demise of many marriages is we think of, you know, uh, okay, now that I'm married, she's quote-unquote mine or he's quote-unquote mine, and, and so now I can just use you whenever I want. And this text is saying, no, listen, if you want to enjoy Eros the way God invented Eros, then Eros is, is like this culmination of affirmation and wooing, right? And so she demands respect, and in this case, he continues to seek to win her, and I put win here in quotes because they're already married, but he, he's going to win her. Why? Because she must, in a kind of a playful sense, she needs to be won over and over again. So I, I just, I'll, I'll just say this, very important. Many enjoyable marriages have kind of this dance of playful uh, denial in it because both parties have enough self-confidence to say, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not cheap here. And this is, this is what they're getting at. And this is very different than the common paradigm where, uh, oh, okay, go ahead, use me, and that kills eros and kills love, if this, if this makes sense. Uh, now, I, I've, I've struggled a little bit with knowing how to, how to share this in practice without getting terribly embarrassed. But I will just give you one very simple example of this in our own marriage, which is that my wife uh, very much appreciates if we're going to be intimate and in the garden, so to speak, right? <laughs> if we're going to do that, my wife very much appreciates if I've shaved beforehand, okay? So then she'll, uh, we'll be in bed and I'll start kissing her and saying, hey, your hair's like a flock of goats tonight. I mean, this is fantastic. <laughs> and, then, and then she'll say, uh, ha-ha, but you haven't shaved, right? And, and, and it's her way of saying, of saying, look, respect me. Do you understand? And, and, and that, look, far from being disillusioning, in a healthy relationship, that kind of playful boundary is good for a marriage. That's, that's what's going on here in the text. So many enjoyable marriages have these practices. Now, here's the other thing that I want to observe here about his affirmation of her. His words of praise start at her head and move down toward the garden, Okay? Uh, and men like to start at the garden and then finish at the garden, right? <laughs> but but uh, interesting, in Chinese medicine, there's a teaching about sexuality uh, that says male sexual love is like fire. It's quick to ignite, and, and then the fire dies down. And it's, it's like kindling, right? That's male sexual love. Female sexual love is like water that must be boiled. And so the male has to understand, okay, how... How do you boil the water? Slow to rise and slow to come back down. And uh, both Chinese medicine and Song Solomon teach the same thing. How, how do you boil the water? Affirmation. That's how you boil the water. And where do you start your affirmation? Where do you start your foreplay? You don't start at the garden. You start at the head. Do you see? And so it's just a very pra- it's at a level, a very practical thing. He knows this. So his praise of her begins at her head. And what he's saying here is not, I want to use you. What he's saying here, and this is, so, this is so ennobling and arousing, he's saying, 
I see you completely. This is why uh, John Gottman, who runs the Gottman Institute at University of Washington and talks about healthy marriages, says that one of the elements of healthy marriage, actually, is, you know, eye contact, right? So you actually, uh, when, when you're talking to your spouse, the honoring thing to do in the moment, if you're re- receiving words from your spouse, the honoring thing to do, put your phone down or your iPad down. Someone said amen, yeah. <laughs> Other people are poking their spouses right now. Put that thing down and make eye contact. And not just eye contact, but also take the time to actually notice and affirm your spouse in just very practical ways. Oh, different earrings. How amazing would that be, right? Oh, you just, oh your hair looks different today. This, I mean, he's, he sees her, and that requires paying attention, and affirms her. And that's dignifying and, and, and ennobling, right? So... Uh, he praises her, beginning with that which is farthest from her garden, and moves down the body. Now, in all rela- now, I would just take a, take a minute to take a larger view beyond marriage. In every relationship in which we find ourselves, especially marriage, but in every relationship, I hope you know the power of genuine affirmation. This is huge. I, um, when I was in college, studying architecture. Some of you know my story well enough though I was kind of at a low point in my life. And one of the things that was so significant in my life was a, fr- a friendship with this guy who was so affirming of me in so many ways. Affirmed my uh, musical ability. Affirmed my uh, design ability in architecture. Affirmed my friend. I was, we, were, we were good friends. And I had grown up in a kind of a non I would just say, Gently a non-affirming environment, right? Like uh, I'd come home from school, 3.8, my GPA. And uh, my mom would say, yeah, but Sue got a 4.0. What's wrong with you? That hurts, right? And so, so uh, when you grow up and, and, and the environment is more, the cup is half empty, you begin to believe that you're inadequate. And when someone speaks into your life and says, no, no, you know what? You actually have gifts, Man, that changed me. And I woke up one day and began to believe that I'm okay and, and believe that, I can, that I'm lovable and believe that I can contribute to the world. This is gigantic. And as I saw the power of my friend Jim in my life, I began to make it a goal in my life too. How can I affirm others and, and pour kind of fuel on the flame of gifts that I see? Because when we do that, we become the presence of Christ in, in the life of another. Because this is what Christ does. Christ wants to affirm you. And so he's, do, he's being the presence of Christ to her. And our capacity to love and affirm, all of us in the room, our capacity to love and affirm is tied to our capacity to feel loved. I can't affirm unless I feel loved in the first place. But if, if, if no one can affirm without first receiving love then where will any of us receive love so that we can become lovers? Well, here's the good news. First John says this. We love because what? He, Christ, first loved us. 
So I have a place to, where I can go to receive love. And then that love of Christ is displayed not only in what God has to say about me in the text, though there are many positive things. I'm complete in Christ and I'm filled with the Holy Spirit and blessed and adopted and all. It's, you know, it's all good, good, good. But that affirmation like takes skin and, 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 and or flesh and bone. That affirmation takes flesh and bone when it's embodied and someone else in this life is the presence of Christ to me. My friend Jim at Cal Poly. My wife in my life, forgiving me in the midst of confession. Over and over again, our calling is to affirm the other. The power of encouragement, man, I can't stress it enough. When we, when we feel seen and loved, known and affirmed, then we're filled with confidence because we feel wooed. So um, Christ is wooing you <laughs> in many in profound ways. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that we're blessed with every spiritual blessing. We're, we're filled with the Holy Spirit. We're sealed. And then powerfully, uh, we're, we're, we're told that we're adopted as well. And this, this adoption notion in Roman culture is powerful because the adopted uh, child had actually greater legal status in family than the natural-born child. You could, you could disinherit a natural-born child, but once you adopt someone in your family, the adopted son is always in the family. I know that I know that I'm loved, right? Because I'm adopted, because I'm complete in Christ, Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, because I've been given 2 Peter chapter 1, all things pertaining to life and godliness, because in John 15, Jesus says, abide in me and allow my word to abide in you. And here's the thing, if you abide in me, you will bear fruit. Allow me... To, to, to fill you, actually, this is Jesus, allow me to fill you with my life. Receive all that I am, and then you will become confident in your identity, united with Christ. And so we're called to receive from Christ all this affirmation so that we become affirming people with one another, and particularly with our spouses. And finally, uh, as we wrap this up, there's invitation and desire that's very clearly seen in a few of these verses. Look at his invitation to her, verse 8. Come away uh, with me from Lebanon, my bride. Uh, journey down from the summit, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. In other words, you're in an unsafe place in this harem. Come away with me. It'll be risky to get here, but come with me. That's what he's saying. And then uh, she's playfully saying no in the moment because of, look at verse 12. My, my sister, my bride, is a locked garden, a rock garden locked, a spring sealed up. So now her, her no answer has the effect of him telling her even how much more he's aroused because she said no. And we can identify with this, some of us in the room, in our marriages, right? So what happens is the garden is locked, so then this is what he says to her. Rather than saying, oh, okay, later, this is what he says. Your shoots are an orchid of pomegranates with choice fruit. Henna, and nard is an aphrodisiac, right? That's verse 13. With, with henna, nard, nard plants, and then again, verse 14, nard again, and saffron, and calamus, and cinnamon, and all the trees of frankincense, and myrrh, and aloe. In other words, what he's saying is, when I smell you, I want you, Right? Uh, and, and you are a garden spring, a well of fresh water, streams flowing from Lebanon. So then <clears throat> she responds, 
to his second invitation. The first invitation was, hey, come away with me. But now my garden's locked. Then he says, but you're so hot. That's my paraphrase. <laughs> that then she says, poetically, awake, O north wind, verse 16. Come, wind of the south. Make my garden breathe out fragrance. Can you believe she says that, right? Let its spices be wafted abroad. May my beloved come into his garden and eat its choice fruits. All right, calm down now. Take a deep breath. Here's what's going on. Let's just recap. Verse 8, he invites. Verse 12, the garden is locked. Verse 13 to 15, his longing for her is rearticulated in a more passionate fashion, now related to the power of fragrance and aroma. And then her erotic invitation to him is in uh, chapter 4, verse 16. Uh, May my beloved come into his garden and eat its choice fruit. And then in chapter 5, he says, I've come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I've gathered my myrrh. I've eaten my honeycomb. I've drunk my wine and my milk. And then his conclusion, eat, friends, drink, imbibe deeply. This is love. This is love. Not use, not stress relief, not an appetite, not masturbating to pixelated images. This is love. Wooing, affirmation, covenant love, safety, playful denial, confidence, respecting boundaries, invitation, wooing again, finally opening. This is beautiful. This is sex. This is God's design. He invites. He doesn't insist. She's awakened by his affirmation and invitation. And then he's aroused by her awakening and declares his arousal. And then she invites him in and then he enters in and declares, drink deeply of love. This is the life for which we're created. How do we close this? Well, here's the deal. Uh, It's tragic to me that the church has uh, been silent in this profound area where life and healing can reside. And because we've been silent, we've ceded this entire area to the culture. And the culture's alternative, I'm telling you, is destructive. And then the church, looking at the destructive alternative, has, has, has said, man, see, look, sex is bad. No. It's high time that we recover an understanding here of the, of the priceless beauty of erotic love because erotic love is a, is a context in which we see the agape love of the Father to us. So my prayer for you, single or married, is that you would recover a high view of erotic love by tying erotic love to affirmation, invitation, wooing, boundaries, all of which thrive or can in the context of covenant love because covenant love is a safe place or should be. And know that uh, safety and confidence, which are ultimately needed for this erotic love to thrive, safety and confidence begins for everyone in the room, single and married, safety and confidence begins by allowing Christ's words of affirmation to you to be received into your heart. In other words, when Jesus says, look, I love you, and, and, and you're whole, and you're beautiful, and you're mine, when Jesus says that to you, can you receive it? Because it's, 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 it's that word from Christ offered through Scripture and through the body of Christ as we encourage one another. It's that word that heals.
that transforms, that awakens, that liberates, that gives us the confidence then to be people with boundaries uh, so that we are able then to give that same kind of love to others. One author says, you know, secondary sources can never satisfy primary needs. And I would suggest that in our culture, every definition of erotic love other than what is articulated in the gospel has become a secondary source. And it will never, it'll never meet the primary need. Our primary need is to be loved, truly loved, when agape meets eros. So as we close this morning, I want to invite you to uh, use the prayer books and the prayer team uh, to pray for marriages, yours, others. Also to think about uh, of this little trinity of eros and affirmation and invitation, uh, where in your life is God speaking to you? Are you needing to be affirming to your partner? Are you needing to be consciously inviting? you need to see your partner? You need to receive love from God as God gives you words of affirmation. Will the Holy Spirit speak to you now as we respond? Father, thank you for making us as whole people. And thank you for this chapter in the Bible that uh, most of us would never take the time to read where we're not going through this book. You're inviting us to be whole people and speaking to us now, Father. But there's a woundedness, there's a brokenness, there's a resistance. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to respond. Give us courage to pray that we might find from you healing. Healing in our marriages, healing in our souls, healing in our singleness, healing in our brokenness. Meet us here.